Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to make sure you knew about my free masterclass that is only this week. So there's some time and options available this week and you can hang out with me live. The masterclass is on the top three myths about weight and health motivation. It's going to be really good. So we're going to debunk some myths. We're going to have some interaction with me live. So make sure you join me with that masterclass and sign up even if you are not able to make it and you will get the replay. So you can check out that masterclass by going to the link for this episode, drshawnhondorp.com forward slash 14. That's drshawnhondorp.com forward slash 14. Or you can check it out in the show notes. There will be a link to sign up for the masterclass. See you there. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of the Motivation Made Easy podcast. So for today's episode, I dive in with my friend and colleague, Dr. Afton Cobal, and we talk about a lot of different topics. And I wanted to give you a heads up on what to expect for this episode. I'll let you know that you might, you may or not be able to tell in the episode, but I talked with Afton afterwards and this episode and this discussion actually made me a little uncomfortable because it helped to me to challenge some of my own biases and beliefs. And it reminded me that we all have biases about our personal experiences that influence our view of health, our view of weight, our view of relationship with food. And also, I think as professionals, we have biases of based on our experience working with patients. And I've, as I've said, I've had kind of a unique experience where I've worked in bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery as well as preventive cardiology. So I've seen both sides of the spectrum, I think, where perhaps I almost titled this episode, should we be recommending weight loss surgery more or less? It felt like a sort of inflammatory title, but it's the question of, you know, when I've talked about certainly this fixation with weight loss can be not health promoting in many, many ways. And I think that's true. But what happened with Dr. Cobal in my discussion today is she was bringing up where she would like the field to see the field change. And she was talking about how bringing up bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery as a treatment for medical conditions can be anti-weight biased. So we talk about weight bias and what it is in the episode, and essentially it's prejudice or stereotypes based on someone's weight or body size. But we also talk about you know, how important it is to challenge that. And she was saying that sometimes if we don't recommend surgery or if we view it as like surgery is your final option, if you failed the other attempts, that can be shaming and stigmatizing and ultimately very unhelpful. So I think it was, the conversation is exactly why I want to be doing this podcast, right? And so I'm excited for you to tune into it. And we talk about a lot of things besides just weight loss surgery. We talk about Dr. Cobal's experiences in the field, ways to improve your relationship with food, um, and a bunch of other things as well. So I can't wait for you to dive in. Just as a reminder, just as always, this is a podcast for educational purposes only and should never be construed as medical advice. And I think if you're, this is particularly important in this episode, and if you're kind of wondering like, Sean, what on earth? You talk about anti-diet, you talk about plant-based, you talk about bariatric surgery? Like, how does this all make sense? And what are you trying to promote here? And I don't know necessarily if you feel that way, but what I am trying to do here is really for full autonomy, you have to know what your choices are and know what the different intervention options are, the different lifestyle choices. And, and then if we present those options with fully informed consent, meaning, you know, the pros and cons, and we talk in the episode a little bit about it's hard to give fully conformed consent for surgery because it's not reversible and it's hard to know how your body will respond, but fully informed consent with what we know and not pressuring and not saying this is the only option, but presenting you with options with a medical provider who knows your history and can help you weigh the pros and cons, but ultimately it's your choice, your body, right? And that's what I think my goal is with this podcast is supporting your autonomy to figure out the way of moving and supporting your health and eating and all of that. It's very complicated, right? But it's you figuring out what works for you with support of hopefully accurate information, right? So that is my goal. That has always been my goal and will continue to be my goal. So thanks for being here. Cannot wait for you to tune in to my conversation with Dr. Cobal.
All right. So welcome to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I have the pleasure to talk to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Afton Cobal today. She is a board certified clinical health psychologist and she and I have similar training. We met at our Rush University Medical Center. So I believe I was on postdoc and you were internship. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, you have a wealth of knowledge in all things eating, weight, relationship with food. So many things to dive in and talk about today. I'm so excited. Welcome, welcome, Afton. I'm so excited too. Thanks, Sean. Yeah. So I will have, you know, given the listeners a little bit of information about you and your background, but can you tell us a little bit um, about your professional background, kind of how you got into what what you've done in the past and and kind of where you're at now? Yeah. So I think what really started me in the path of psychology and in the area of health and eating and weight is I had these amazing mentors in undergrad who were health psychologists. And I remember then learning about self-determination theory um, and learning about, so we did some research on motivation, intrinsic motivation of marathon runners. Um, And so that was kind of my first taste of research, first taste of health psychology. And it was just so interesting. And so for a little while, I thought I was going to maybe become like a motivational speaker or something. And then (laughs) I decided, no, maybe I'll do this psychology thing. I was going to be, of course, the next Katie Couric. I, I remember like in seventh grade, I, I emailed her on the old dial up AOL to see if I could work with her. I thought I was going to be, you know, a, a journalist or something. No, no. So the That's psychology <laughs> really felt like it was a piece of it because I could talk with people about things I'm passionate about. And so, so then these, these um, mentors that I had were so great. We, I got to go to conferences with them and kind of learn about sharing, you know, information about health psychology and research. And so that made me know that I wanted to do graduate school and PhD. I thought I wanted to do research really in health psych um, and weight management. So I ended up going to Bowling Green State University and working with my awesome advisor, Rob Carrolls, who did a lot of work on weight management. So that's what I thought I would do there. He was kind of known for doing, um, weight loss interventions. But when I got there, I started to learn about weight bias. So negative attitudes and stereotypes about people because of their weight. And I just totally fell in love with that topic area. It was so interesting. That's what I ended up doing my master's and thesis or my, my master's thesis and my dissertation on. Um, so that really kind of helped shape the rest of my career. I got a lot more involved in obesity and weight management research. And then in graduate school, doing clinical rotations where I got to work with folks struggling with weight um, and just learning about how challenging that is and all of the factors that play into it. Then I did internship at Rush where we got to meet. Mm -hmm. And that is where I started to work with folks who um, were going through bariatric surgery. And so um, started to do pre-surgical evaluations and really love that work and love working with people post-surgery. Um, and I'd really been living in this world of behavioral weight loss. So it was kind of new for me to learn about surgical weight management and really just found it so interesting. Um, and so then I ended up going to fellowship at Mayo and Rochester, where I really specialized more in bariatrics and obesity, um, and spent two years there and then came here to Gunderson for a position with our bariatric program, um, where I, uh, get to see people pre and post-surgery and still kind of do all the things I really enjoy. I, I get to do research related to, to weight and I get to talk with people all the time about eating and activity and, um, surgery and weight loss. And so, yeah, yeah. it's been pretty cool so far. Yeah. And you get, yeah, like you said, you get talk about, um, going back to, to your roots of this self-determination theory and intrinsic motivation. And obviously that's a, I'm a huge fan of that. And that's a lot of what I talk about in this podcast. And then that's interesting. You had some uh, different ideas about what you might end up doing with your career and it's led you here, but you're still, I think in talking with you, it seems like there is a lot of intrinsic motivation in like what you do and the fact that you get to, well, you have administrative roles and clinical and research, which is actually kind of rare for a psychologist to find that type of position, but you seem like you're autonomously motivated to do what you do. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I, for me, it's the best of both worlds. I think 
um, being able to do all the things that I really like to do related to the topics I'm interested in is really fun. That's awesome. Well, we have so much to delve into today. I have so many questions for you uh, about professional stuff, but I did want to ask this question that I've started to ask people, which is, is there anything that you want to share about your personal relationship to food, exercise, or your body that you've noticed that might be helpful to our listeners? Yeah, I feel like, so this year, this past year, 2020 has been a really interesting year and challenging for all of us with COVID. And I know we've gotten to talk about that as friends. And for me, I had a baby in January and so it's my, it's my third kiddo. And so I was kind of reflecting then, I feel like after every pregnancy and then having kids kind of reflecting on changes in my body over time. And I feel like in the work that I do as a health psychologist, I so often am promoting this idea of body acceptance and, and, um, appreciating your body for the function that it, that it does rather than how it looks. And yet it's so easy. I was noticing for myself, I know so much about this and talk with it, talk with people about this all the time. And yet it's so easy to have culture and the media and this emphasis on the thin ideal just really come into your awareness. And so with having a third baby and COVID stress, I noticed the, all these thoughts and worries at various po- po- points postpartum, like, oh, I'm not losing enough weight or my body should look like this. What if it's never like it was when really who, who cares, you know, all those kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. I thought I wanted to share that. I feel like that's really common for women in general. You kind of can't escape it, right? I don't think so. I don't think it's possible. I'd love to live in a world where (laughs) that wasn't the case, but it's, yeah, I think you had shared, I believe if I remember correctly, like that sort of like, uh, I made that post about like this truth about postpartum weight loss. And you said found that validating, I believe. Yeah, definitely. Because I feel like as much as I would worry about it or get in my head about it, then really for me, I'm, I kind of always go back to the same size. And so I guess kind of another learning for me and maybe other people appreciate this is the power of, or the role of genetics for some people, not, not for everybody, but for me, my body kind of always settles where it, needs to be or wants to be. And, um, particularly when we don't get caught up in like the diet mentality and the stress and all of that, then, then it can actually go in a different direction sometimes. But if you let yourself kind of work with your body versus against it, it's, uh, like hard to do because there's all these messages, but luckily you have training and you were able to sort of catch and like, Oh man. And it sounds like you kind of had this sense of like, I should be able to not feel like this. And yeah, I don't know that it's um, avoidable. Yeah. It was like this back and forth in my brain. Like I should know not to think this way. And yet I do. And so then I just kind of try to take this approach. Like, well, it's there just because I have those thoughts that might be negative at times about my body. doesn't mean I have to act on them. I don't have to do anything with that. I can, I should be focusing instead on what's valuable to me and what do I want my eating and activity to look like in a way that's really sustainable. And to your point, John, then I think that that probably is what helps a body just sort of settle where it wants to be. Yeah. When we respect it, listen to it, don't act on like self, you know, negative yeah. critical thoughts. And uh, yeah, I think, well, yeah, I know that many, many people, particularly women, men too, struggle with that back and forth of like, this isn't helpful. This style of thinking isn't helpful. And yet it's so hard. It is an uphill battle in our society. We've talked about on this podcast, how certain groups of people have a way harder time, right? Being yes. a larger body or certain, yes. you know, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different layers to it, intersections of different identities that have a harder time accepting our bodies, but it's hard enough like for you and I. And so, yeah, yeah. For me, real, real life. Also having three kids, knowing that my two older kids were noticing me and my body and wanting to be really mindful of not commenting negatively on it or not doing things that were, uh, that would let them know that any body shape is bad. Um, so I think that kind of helped too, because then even though I might want to say something to my hubby about it, like, Oh, I really wish that this wasn't going on with my body. I couldn't because my kiddos are right there. So that, Mm -hmm. that would like check me and let me know. No, if I don't want to say this in front of my kids, it probably isn't something I should even be saying to myself at all. It's not helpful. 
Yeah, kids are a good motivator for so many things. And that's what I think. Yeah, just in this past week, I've looked at like some of the stats and body image in kids and it's makes me want to cry. It's so sad. Mm-hmm. And we have to change things if we're going to change our view of health. Yeah. And yeah, kids can be a check, a good values gut check, right? You think about self-determination totally. theory and, and grounding ourselves in our values. So um, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And um when so let's dive into a little bit about behavioral weight loss statistics and mm-hmm. and really just how do you think we're doing perhaps as a field in general maybe where we might be people doing a disservice to people in the ways we talk about weight or weight loss what are your thoughts oh i think we're doing such a crappy job i think that i think we've kind of perpetuated this idea in the media and in popular culture and unfortunately even in healthcare I work in healthcare that weight loss is all about diet and exercise. So if you just eat less and you exercise more, you will lose weight. And if you're, if you're not losing weight, it means something's wrong with you. You're, you're bad or you, you aren't working hard enough or you're lazy. And, and so now in the work that I do with folks who are thinking about bariatric surgery, I've just gotten to see people just struggle for decades with, their weight and experience these messages about obesity that are, very, that are very simplistic. Again, that just eat less, exercise more. And I feel like, you know, it's, it's not bad advice to eat healthy and to exercise, but that's something everybody should be doing, not just people who are trying to lose weight. Right. right so right. I feel like really what I've learned in working with, with this population of folks is that, that it's, so much more complicated and the science really proves that, that it's really multifactorial and certainly behavior is important. You know, what you eat and how much you move is important, Mm -hmm. but so is our environment and our genetics and our physiology and our stress, all those kinds of things really impact us all. And it's really not fair to just pin it all on diet and exercise And yet it's just a multi-billion dollar industry and it rakes in so much money. So it's hard to kind of fight against that. Um, And even knowing that people can still fall into that trap, even people who are seeing me for bariatric surgery and know that it's been impossible for them to lose weight with diet and exercise can still fall into that and just truly believe, yeah, if I just tried a little harder with eating less, I, I I could do it. Yeah, it really erodes their sense of self-confidence or I guess even that uh, self-determination theory, the idea of competence or feeling like I can set out a a goal for myself and achieve it. Many people that I've worked with, and I'm sure you as well, have this idea that like I'm successful in all these areas of my life, like what's wrong with me? Yeah. And and then they just lose faith in themselves. And that's, I think, the thing that's the saddest to see because nothing's wrong with you. The system's failing you and the messages are failing you. And like obesity or having higher weight is a moral failure. You know, I just think that that is perpetuated so much in our culture. I sometimes joke with my patients, like you've been working so hard and it sounds like, you know, all the things and you, you are even maybe doing all the right things and your body's just fighting against you. And really it's maybe even like asking yourself to change your respiratory rate. So, you know, maybe you, you breathe a certain number of breaths per minute. That's average for you. And you might be asking yourself to all of a sudden slow that down and breathe less often in a minute or in five minutes. And so I'll tell people you can do it. I mean, you have good willpower. You could do it for a minute or five or 10, or maybe even half an hour or an hour, but your body's not designed to do that. So it takes all of your energy and all of your focus all the time to be able to sustain that lifelong. So you're really fighting this uphill battle. That's not about you and your lack of willpower. It's about what your body's designed to do and what it's not designed to do. So that's, that's what I really have learned over the years about weight. And I think when, when people hear that it's really empowering for them, because it lets them know that there's not something wrong with me. It's that my body wants me to be at this size. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And yeah, you could choose to spend all that willpower and energy, like fighting your biology, but then what are you going to miss out on? Right. Uh And and really taking a look at that. And then, um, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's so hard. Um, And that really touches on this idea of weight bias, which you already Mm -hmm. mentioned, and that's been an area of focus for you. Can you define weight bias for us? 
Yeah. So it's really, you know, negative attitudes or stereotypes about people because of their weight. And there are even, I know, you know, this, Sean, there are even some researchers or clinicians who have identified weight bias as the last acceptable form of prejudice. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not as PC anymore to have, to make other kinds of jokes about certain groups, which is a good thing. It shouldn't be PC. And yet you all the time hear people make jokes about people because of their weight. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really so pervasive and you would think I'll have people say to me, well, well, wow, there's so many people in the world today that have higher weight you would think people would become even more accepting because there are more people of, of, you know, larger body sizes, but it's really almost the opposite. It's like, as weight goes up in our culture, the more these weight loss messages are perpetuated, not more acceptance. So then people continue to just feel even more stigma or feel those negative attitudes because of their weight. Right. And, and there's also the concept of internalized weight bias, right? It's not just, people in smaller bodies feeling this way, right? And unfortunately, the people in the larger bodies can often and that like feel that way just as strongly, if not sometimes even more strongly. Definitely. It's one thing to just experience weight bias um, or overt stigma. You know, certainly that happens where people will get comments about their weight that are really negative. Um, But then it's a lot of research has suggested it's even more damaging to really then internalize those messages. So now I believe them myself. I believe them about myself, um, mm-hmm. that I'm lazy or non-compliant or there's something wrong with me because of my weight. Yeah. So they buy into those beliefs. So psychologically that negatively impacts them. What about physically? How does weight bias impact people physically, um, from a health physical standpoint? Oh, there's so, there's so many interesting research articles about this. And I like to share this with medical providers that I work with, because I think sometimes unwittingly healthcare providers can promote or perpetuate weight bias. Like they're, they're trying to help people be healthy. And sometimes they don't do that in a way that is helpful. And it can, again, promote bias. So I always share with them. And I think everybody should know that there is a link between the experience of weight bias and increasing weight over time. So just experiencing those negative attitudes can lead to um, behaviors or even changes physiologically that can increase weight over time. Um, There's, gosh, there's studies on um, stress hormones, cortisol levels, all the things that we know are not great for our health. Weight bias can lead to that. And then I think what's most kind of shocking and scary for me is there is some research that shows that when you control for all other health related factors, there's even some indication that weight bias is predictive of early mortality for people with obesity. So it does exactly the opposite of what maybe some well-intended people might do who think maybe it's motivating. Um, It ends up really doing the opposite. Yes, my goodness. We see that in the um, more extreme ways, but in subtle ways too, where people are like, well, if we don't tell people, it's they're not going to motivate to change. And obviously weight bias is, is filled with like shame, right? Yeah. And, and sometimes people think shame is somehow going to be a tool for change and it never, ever is. And yet no. ooh, for some reason we keep, keep trying there and it's... Uh, it's incredibly frustrating. I think that weight bias is a really good example of this idea of we'll hear like the, we, and we talk about in this podcast, like the health at every size movement and how like de-emphasizing the role of weight and the people will say, well, weight is associated with health risk. And, but there's so many things uh, association doesn't imply cause. And so there's so many things that we're not measuring that, or we are measuring, but the weight bias is probably a really big contributor to some of the reasons why people at higher weights also have higher health risk at times, right? right. Or, or, you know, often do. And there's other factors, right? There's habits, but I do think we cannot underestimate the power of that. And that's not measured and assessed for in all studies because it's, well, it's hard to measure, right? Definitely. So, Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, and we already started to talk about self-determination theory 
and some of the ways that the way we approach weight loss really undermines competence. So we talk about the, you know, those three key psychological needs, just for the listeners, a reminder, autonomy, freedom from excessive pressure to behave in a certain way, competence, feeling like I got this, self-efficacy, and then relatedness, feeling like one's connected and a sense of having a sense of belonging. What are some of the ways that you think we undermine this in, in people that are trying to improve their weight or, and or their health? I think kind of the messages that people get about a one size fits all strategy, again, eat less, exercise more, that that just magically should fit for everybody. Yeah. I guess in my own practice, what I see is that that may not be inherently harmful for people who are at lower body weights, but the population I work with are people who have a BMI of 40 or more and often have medical problems already because of their weight or might be debilitated by their weight. And so it's a, it's a different a different picture. And so if those pay, if those folks went to their doc and they heard, um, yeah, just eat less exercise more, that is really substandard care. It's not what's going to be most helpful for them with managing their health. So I feel like this one size fits all approach really takes away the flexibility that allows people to develop autonomy, what's going to work for them and competence to feel like they're being successful in, in their journey. Right, right. And even, I mean, I would argue that even people at a lower weight, like the more we tell people eat less, exercise more, we're telling them what not to do. I mean, I guess exercise more technically we're telling them what to do, but like even that it's, we, I see this all of the time and I'm sure you do too. Well-intentioned medical professionals will be like, well, here's a list of foods to avoid. And it's like, first of all, you just made that person want those foods even more. And I know you were well-intentioned, but that's not how our brains work. Our brains like choice and our brains like to think about what we can add into our lives versus take out. And yet almost always like calorie monitoring and reduction is like the way we approach this or even food reduction, right? Portion size, it's all controlled restriction and it all backfires or pretty much all the time, at least right. and all these ideas about, um, you know, fad diets or the diets that are all the rage, like keto or intermittent fasting. I hear about a lot lately. And mm-hmm. yeah, I think it just really does undermine people's ability to make change and to have autonomy and confidence. Yeah. Yeah. I know medical providers, they don't have a lot of time. And so sometimes it is about trying to get information that they think will be helpful, but we got to do better. Yeah, <laughs> got to work. Absolutely. On absolutely. And you've, you know, talked about obviously BMI or body mass index to describe the populations that you work with, but what, what are your thoughts about our good old body mass index? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not a big fan. It seems really antiquated and it doesn't seem to provide a lot of useful information, maybe outside of categorizing people in research protocols. Mm -hmm. So in terms of clinical utility, it's not very helpful. I share this with patients all the time. Um, when I'm talking with them about how they have a lot of knowledge and they're doing a lot right and their body might be fighting them, I'll say, we probably both know people who are really thin and never exercise and eat horribly and do all the health behaviors that would be recommended against, but they're genetics just put them at that weight, right? So if they go to their doctor and the doctor looks at BMI, no problem. BMI is good. Um, when really there's, there's a lot of behaviors that might still need some intervention or help support somebody being healthier. So that doesn't always tell us about somebody's health. I'll say that to people. I'll say, so you're, you know, just a BMI or just where your weight is. That doesn't really tell me anything about your health. Unfortunately, I think in healthcare, we probably make assumptions about it, that it, that it does. Yeah, we certainly do. Right. And, or many, many providers do. And it's, yeah, it's the tool that we have. And, you know, some people are fighting for making that a change. And I think that is valuable. And unfortunately, it's going to be an uphill battle, I believe, because like you said, as the research protocols, like the only value I see in it is like describing the research protocols that we've already done. Like we can describe the, the research based on it because the research has already been done and it's the tool that was used. And I guess the only other value is it's quick and easy because yep. it's a little bit harder. Like you can get it based on like two self-reported measures, Definitely. right. Versus like waist circumference that you'd have yeah. to actually see someone and measure their waist or ideally something even more comprehensive, like a lab or like, you know, yeah. something about your physiology. Well, and you know this too, Sean, like 
people who've had bariatric surgery, the goal isn't, the expectation is not that they'll get down to, I'm doing air quotes, a normal BMI, because that's way too low for a lot of people, especially people who have a genetic predisposition for higher body sizes anyway. So we wouldn't, after bariatric surgery, we'll, we'll cheer people on and say, you're doing fantastic. And you're doing exactly what we would want you to do. And yet sometimes they can feel frustrated when they don't get to this BMI number, this BMI range that's defined as normal or healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that really always reminds me how unhelpful they are because here are people who, who had surgery to kind of help with, um, with their difficulties with weight and, yeah, it's still this. And maybe they're doing lots of healthy behaviors, but it's still, you know, not good enough by the standards yep. that are proposed. Yeah. You're given that message. If you don't reach that weight, that you're not good enough, you're not going to be healthy yeah. and that you are not okay based on this label. Right. Yeah. And, and that's going to still be in your medical chart. And I think that like, it would be real. I, when I was at my other job, I gave up the fight eventually, but I was even just trying to get the term morbid obesity out of the chart was a I couldn't do it. Like I wouldn't use it in my notes. I refused to, but it was still the way it pulls up in the chart. And that is not accurate nor helpful. And, but yet I just, I, I should have kept fighting, but I gave up eventually because I was too frustrated. I know it's hard in healthcare. I just gave a weight bias talk to our bariatric team. Uh, we have a great team who's really, I think, I think psychologically minded and really, um, appreciate, appreciate, appreciates learning about weight bias. And we were talking about that, you know, the terminology doesn't match with what the literature shows that people prefer, you know, so there's lots of studies that suggest people don't like the term obese, um, Mm -hmm. and don't like other medical terms. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, the medical terminology hasn't caught up with that yet. So, so physicians or other providers are sometimes stuck with that, you know, having to give a diagnosis. Um, and then it can feel uncomfortable knowing that then that's in your medical record or in a note. And really that can feel really unhelpful and stigmatizing. Yeah. I was told by billers that like, I need to give it. And I'm like, right. I'm not doing that. <laughs> they didn't appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like some of the ways that you'd love to see the field improve or change, I know we've started to touch on that, but are there other things that you would love to see? Like if you had your, your perfect world and a magic wand, some things that you'd like to see change in how we yeah. talk about or approach these issues? Well, Okay. So you might be surprised to hear me say this because we've been talking a little bit peripherally about, um, body acceptance and health at every size. I actually really would love to see bariatric surgery more universally recommended and utilized because I think there could be ways that we, well, it would take a lot of work, but so much of our efforts around weight loss are tying a person's worth and their body size and health together. And I feel like maybe there are ways of uncoupling that. And instead looking at, I'll use the term obesity, looking at obesity as in relation, like when it's causing physical disability or really severe health problems, I would like to see there's less stigma attached to treatment options that we know are really successful, like bariatric surgery. So I feel like doing more of that is actually anti-weight biased doing recommending bariatric surgery when appropriate is anti-weight bias because it's not perpetuating this idea that weight is all about diet and exercise. It really suggests that it's about biology and genetics and that the way to treat it. And I say treat, not mean treating a person because somebody's size is bad, but treating medical problems or treating disability um, effectively is so important. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, yeah. And I I think as I, you know, with this podcast, we're trying to sort of like learn from different approaches and learn from, have the medical community come into the conversation and also have, you know, evidence-based health at every size come into the conversation. And it's a really tough balance because there's people and, and I don't know, I think I've had people ask me like, well, I mean, I've been in working in bariatric surgery for a number of years and I don't now, but they want to know my opinion on it. And 
my biggest thing is like, are we fully supporting people's autonomy and freedom to choose sure. and, and being aware of the full pros and cons? And that's a little hard to do with surgery because until you've had it, you can't really know what the full pros and cons are because sure. you don't exactly know how your body's going to respond to it. Right. Yeah. So that's the, and I guess my only thing that I would say about that is it's, it is kind of interesting to hear you say that, but I, I guess knowing you, I shouldn't be that surprised because, <laughs> but yeah, I see what you're saying about the, the anti-weight bias. Like you're saying, like, if we can talk to people about like, just give them this option and not say like, just keep trying and only do this if you failed the other attempts, it's, um, but yeah, I guess the, the main thing I would say is like, have we really honed in on as a field? And I don't know the answer to this, like what I do think weight's way overemphasized in terms of how we approach health. But sure. the biggest thing I see for people, like when you said weight can be debilitating is like the mobility aspects. That's but I what do, I think about. Right. Yeah. Because I do think we overestimate weight in terms of the metabolic aspects. Like we, we think about like health behaviors, if you can move and eat differently, we can greatly improve those. The yeah. scale might not move a lot. Right. Would I don't, is that your impression? I mean, yeah, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but it makes me think about like very rarely the people that I see for who are wanting bariatric surgery are doing it because of appearance. They're doing it as a treatment for diabetes or they're doing it because mobility is a problem. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, um, I don't know. I feel like we're doing people a disservice by not recommending a treatment that's going to help people's quality of life improve. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just think that, well, okay. I guess another thought that's coming to my mind is, um, it's really easy for me to have conversations with people whose weight does not impact them that much physically or like quality of life wise to have a conversation about acceptance. And sometimes it feels I don't know, hypocritical for me to talk about that with patients who have a much larger body size than I do, because it's truly, it is easier for me to have acceptance about my body size because I'm not debilitated by my weight. And society so, tells you you're okay. Yeah. Well, and so I want, so, yeah. I want everybody to love and appreciate their body. And yet I can empathize with the experience of being really unable to have autonomy and competence and relatedness because of weight, like, because weight takes away the ability to engage in things that you want to do that are consistent with your values. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it feels a little different for folks that are really struggling in that way. Um, and yeah, then I wish that we talked about bariatric surgery more. I wish it wasn't so stigmatized. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a complex topic and it's such a complex situation because Again, I, I'm like the other side of the coin is like we, because of our fixation and obsession with weight loss, we don't often emphasize, like I talk about like whole food, plant-based, like that's not, and I worked in a preventive cardiology clinic where the doc was like the, giving really full autonomy and like this could reverse some of your medical conditions. Uh -huh. That isn't talked about that much either. And I think there's these things that are not discussed. And again, that may or may not at a higher weight there are some evidence that you can reverse diabetes with that. And that's a whole nother discussion, but a, not everyone wants to do that. B it may not weight wise, get you to the place where mobility wise, you feel good enough, yeah. but it's like, we do miss these opportunities to give people full autonomy and choice, yeah. probably because they're complex conversations and probably, sure. but, but that is where I would love to see more discussion around these, these topics. I, it's interesting. I, yeah. I feel, I feel like people can still do those things and have bariatric surgery. And mm -hmm. I think the challenge is when those things are viewed as bad diets, right? Cause whole 30 could be viewed as another thing that I try to lose weight rather than a lifestyle change or plant-based could be viewed as another thing. I try to lose weight mm -hmm. and then it's, we don't stick to it. So yeah, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like the folks I see have a lot of awareness about different tools they have in their toolbox that might, you know, help them with feeling um, more flexibility with eating or, or more autonomy with eating, but doesn't change their weight. You know, their weight yeah. is what it is. Yeah. It might not. Yeah. yeah. It often doesn't, or it like doesn't minimally. Right. Right. Mm-hmm.
yeah, autonomy and choice, right? Like it's a, it's a lot of, uh, but but you're right. People are more informed now too, and they're more uh -huh. doing their own research. And um, I think more I, I think I talk about like plant based because at least for me, I didn't feel like I had that information until much later in my life, and I was like, oh, well, that would have been good to know. But I do think that's changing quite a bit too yeah. over the past like handful of years. Yeah, and I would just worry. I th did you ever read that book? Um, Michael Pollan. What was that book? There was a In defense of food. Is that the one he wrote a couple of them? The one he, that I always quote is in defense of food, eat real food, yes. mostly plants, not too much. Yes. Eat food. Not a lot. Mostly plants. Yes. Yes. I love that concept. And yet I just feel like that's another, I feel sometimes needing to be cautious because no matter what I might recommend or what might work for me doesn't work for everybody. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that's the slippery slope of recommendations around eating for anybody is, mm -hmm. um, how do you allow people to be autonomous? I know. I always want to make it as simple as possible for people. And I do, that's why I do like that quote to some yeah. extent. Right. Because I don't want us to like overcomplicate nutrition, yeah. but because that in itself is a weight loss industry tactic to be yes. like, well, you need all these specific plans and you need to count all your macros to be successful. And that's another tactic that they say, you need my tool or you need my exogenous ketone or you need right. my, you know, these fancy fat burner pill or whatever. And so I don't know anything about exogenous ketones, <laughs> but for some reason they've like started to come into my awareness the, for some reason lately, but, but yeah, it's, um, it's tough. I mean, a relationship with food is complicated, right? And so we want to, to give people full, full choice, but yeah. yeah. And definitely, people, definitely more aware of surgery as an option, I think, than they ever have been. Yeah. And yet it's interesting. The biggest barrier for people having bariatric surgery, I think is insurance coverage. So not enough insurances cover it which okay. then is really evidence of weight bias. Cause it's this idea of, no, I'm not going to cover that. Um, but we'll cover something related to diet and exercise again, with this idea that it's just about eating less and exercising more. Yeah. Right. Yep. Good point. We'll cover insulin, but we don't cover bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we could talk forever, but I want to uh, transition a little bit to, I've started to ask people this question of what is one thing that you feel true autonomous internal motivation for? And this could be health related or, or something else. I, I'm starting to just be curious about this for folks. So my initial reaction is it's really hard for me to think of something. And then I have this internal dialogue, like, is that bad? <laughs> That's funny. I'm surprised. But then I also have this thought that follows it. Like, no, there are lots of things. I mm -hmm. guess for me, maybe it's just a little more complicated. And it really speaks to how, I don't know how things can get in the way of autonomous motivation, right? Because there might be something I really love to do. And then there's something else that like work. I'll just give that as an example because we were talking about that at the very beginning today. Like, I love the work that I do. And yet I get paid for the work that I do. I get evaluated for the work that I do. I have an annual review coming up. Right. So, so those things kind of get in the way and can make it, yes. make you get away from why you really love doing what you do. Yep. They zap us from that. Yeah. internal. That's interesting. Yep. That makes sense. But I, but I want, okay. But I do, I, I do think there probably is something, um, and it's social exercise. <laughs> so okay. I like exercise. <laughs> but I love doing it with a friend. So like uh -huh. going for a walk with a friend or a run with a friend or something that's being outside and moving Yes. and that socializing. I love to do nice. nobody would have to pay me for that or convince me. I just love to do that. Mm -hmm. and but it took you... me a little bit to get there, which is kind of interesting. Did it? What, what, meaning what like, kept you from getting there? To, meaning to your point, it took me a little while to think of that thing. Because oh, to sure. your point, so many other things can undercut autonomous motivation. So many other things that I might otherwise be motivated to do. Because originally I was thinking, oh, exercise. I really like to exercise. But then I was thinking about various points in my life where desire for weight loss or 
to achieve a goal, like to train for something where that has gotten in the way mm-hmm. and kind of sapped that and makes me feel like then I don't know if it is, if I am a truly internally motivated for that. Well, it's a perfect example of how it's going to probably wax and wane over time. Yeah. It's not like this is my level of a autonomy for this behavior, it, it fluctuates. And there's times when we're more autonomously motivated for a certain type of exercise versus less. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's fluid, it's flexible. (laughs) Yeah. It also makes me think that it's probably not bad. It sometimes maybe I would view, I can fall into this not great habit of viewing it as like good or bad intrinsic or extrinsic, but that's not really right right? Because mm-hmm. it's really more of a continuum. Mm-hmm. And at various points in our life with various things, we may move along that continuum. Yep. And even if I was totally extrinsically motivated for something, it doesn't mean it's bad or that I'm bad because of that. Right. Um, but yeah, I just think that it's, it can be easy for me to fall into that. Yes. Like I got to be autonomous in all the things Whereas yes. I had reflected, you're like, you're so autonomously motivated for work, but yeah, there's things that zap it. And that I always come back to the the kid example of eating foods. And I don't know, I love this study where they give the kids the veggies and they see it's yummy. It'll make you strong or it's yummy. And it'll make you strong. And the kids liked it less when they said yummy and it'll make you strong. Right. I just think that the concrete example of how the external really can take away the internal, it's not bad to have external, but if we only have external and I think with the diet mentality, it just like continues to pull us down. Like I think of it as sort of a, like a string that like continues to like, you can make some progress with, you know, how you're feeling about your relationship with food, but like that diet mentality pulls us back down into shoulds. And it's really, really hard for a bunch of reasons to cut that string, but it can be so freeing when you do so, because then you're just like, it doesn't have to do with that. But I think for most people, you get pulled back into that mentality because of all the pressures. Right. And, and you can catch yourself hopefully quickly, but um, it's, it's not easy. I'm curious, what do you think about this, Sean? Do you think that if you are totally intrinsically motivated for something, does that mean you love it and enjoy it? Intrinsic motivation, I would say is you do the behavior because you find it enjoyable. Something about the behavior might be challenging. So some of this, like, I mean, usually that means you love it and have passion for it. But what is it? The the definition is like enjoyable. Something about the actual act itself is enjoyable or pleasurable. So yeah, usually as long as you love a challenge. What do you say to people then who really want to move exercise in some way, but they really don't enjoy it. And yet it's really consistent with their values to move. Mm -hmm. Um, they, again, they want to do it. They, it, it makes them feel better when they do, but they don't like it. Yeah. So like, I'll just share why I'm asking that. It says I get stuck sometimes with people who feel like, well, I have to like it first and then I'll do it. And so Mm -hmm. instead I'll sometimes say, well, maybe you start with just following your feet and the behavior starts. And I, and then maybe over time you develop the liking, but but sometimes I'll say to people, but you might never. And then it's just this idea of what's most consistent with your values. But I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I would definitely start with the values there. Right. And I think that that's the best example I have is probably my personal example of cooking. And, and cause I used to never, ever cook, but when we had our daughter three and a half years ago, I was like, we, and then we also had the the diagnosis of this like high cancer risk in our family. And I'm like, okay, like it's time. I'm going to start cooking. There's still times I don't like it, but I, it's consistent and I don't do it all the time, but I've consistently cooked a, a lot more than I had ever had in the past because it's consistent with the person I want to be. My yeah. identity is tied up with someone who makes home cooked meals for their family, at least a couple times a week, hopefully not always, yeah. but you know, and so that's, it's identity based. And yeah, sometimes I I'm like, that was fun. And this is pretty, but a lot of times I would rather be doing other stuff. Right. It's not always but enjoyable. It, no. And you, you kind of have to let go of that. Like intrinsic motivation is great, but autonomous motivation is 
identified and integrated, which is the other two types of autonomous motivation. Like the ideal type of motivation is autonomous motivation, not intrinsic. Although intrinsic, because we're never going to be intrinsically motivated for everything, right? right? Because there's just hard things we're going to have to do. Right. (laughs) We may never be intrinsically motivated for things that we really want to do and have to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, that's, that's the great thing. And that's where like, yeah, values, clarification, values, work, that's where an act, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy could be helpful too, of just like yeah. giving up this need to control the, that's the motivation of like, I got to yeah. get up and feel like doing this. Eh, no, you get to choose what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, one final question, then we'll finish up. What are some things people could do right now to move towards improving their relationship with food from an evidence-based approach? Oh, I would say stop putting pressure on yourself to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And instead think about how can you feel more in control of or satisfied with the way that you're eating. And Mm -hmm. when the focus is so much on weight or weight loss or body, size or shape, then all that stuff kind of gets lost and it can, um, really make it hard to figure out what, what feels good for you. So I feel like what I often share with people I work with, what I try to do for myself is just to focus on, um, what feels good for me and not meaning like what tastes good all the time. Right. Like, um, I don't only eat brownies because that's not consistent with my values. You might not feel super great doing that either. <laughs> You're right. That actually probably wouldn't feel really Eventually. Good. Yeah. But, but yeah, focusing less on weight loss as a goal and mm-hmm. instead focusing on, um, the behaviors that feel good for you, whether yeah, that's moving more, whether that's, again, I sometimes use that term, like feeling more in control of your eating because so often people will share with me, um, that it feels like the food runs the show and they're, they're like white knuckling it. Like, no, 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 I don't want to eat that. Okay. I will. And then I feel guilty and it's this cycle. And instead if you can be in the driver's seat and feeling like you're the one deciding what am I eating? What, what's the day look like that that feels a lot better for a lot of people, even if it's not perfect, even if, if it's not, um, what, you know, the fad diets tell us to do. Right. Yeah. Move away from the pressure, control the things you can ask yourself what works for you. And, uh, yeah. And then be flexible basically. Right. And you're a human being and this, you're never going to be perfect. I don't, I haven't met any perfect humans yet. And I think also like if people are listening who do struggle with weight, like having knowledge that, um, your body size doesn't say anything about who you are as a person and that disentangling that can be really helpful, you know, so that it's not a moral failure that weight is higher than you would like it to be. And in fact, it's the way your body is probably designed. Um, and so spending so much time and energy fighting against that with diets or exercise can just really sap energy that you could use in other places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been an invigorating talk. I'm still like, my brain's still thinking about some other things we talked about earlier. So I love that. I love the discussion. I love just looking at uh, different ways to think about these things. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sean. All right. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. I'd love to hear your reactions, what questions you have. Like I said, these are complex topics and certainly I can't answer a question from what you should do, but what other information do you want or need about these topics to feel like you kind of know your full options and understand the pros and cons of different approaches? I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can reach me at support at drshawnhondorp.com. And make sure, just as a reminder, if you haven't already, make sure you're signed up for that masterclass where you can hang out with me live, hear about some myths about weight and health motivation, and have some fun. So that will be found on the page for this episode, drshawnhondorp.com forward slash 14. Thanks and have a wonderful day.